What defines success? The practical reality is that I like the capital markets, I like competition, I like pressure, and I like intensity, and I would pay to work for someone if I could do all of those things on a global basis. What happens when you get knocked down? My analogy is Ted Williams, who bat 400, he was the best hitter in time, but he made out three out of five times, so we know we're gonna make mistakes, so you have to be practical about life. What makes some people radiate? I'm not working, and I haven't worked since I started. I actually have a passion for the markets, this is Radiate. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radiate, the show where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they work their way to the top. This week, we have Mario Gabelli. He's a legendary value investor. He's like Warren Buffett, digs into financial reports and buys underpriced companies. He's the founder of Gamco, an investment firm with just under $40 billion in assets under management. When he talks, Wall Street listens. Now, we've had quite a few entrepreneurs on our show lately, but what if you're not interested in starting your own company? What if you're one of the thousands of college grads or MBAs who are about to join a Wall Street firm? What is it like to work for a guy who's worked his way up all the way from the Bronx, MG from the block, to the top of the finance world? What lessons can you learn from him? So here we go with Mario Gabelli. All right, Mario, so I don't think I've ever actually talked to you about your childhood. Seriously, and sort of what drove you to become such a big success. So tell me about growing up in the Bronx and how that shaped who you've become. <laughs> That's a few years ago. Like uh, four score and s 10 years ago, <laughs> our forefathers created this world. Oh, come on, Mario. Uh, essentially, it was a totally different world. We were, lived, and as far as I was born in a block off Park Avenue where the train station goes down to New York City. And between that, you go Park Avenue, Washington, Batgate, and Third Avenue. And there was an L called the Third Avenue L that went from the Bronx, Gun Hill Road, all the way down to Chinatown. Mm -hmm. and when you're four or five years old, you can get on the train because nobody bothered you. When you were four or five? Yes, you can't deal in the culture of today. Wow. In addition to that, you can walk down the street because it was extraordinarily safe. You walked out and you, we were dealing with an area in the Bronx between Batgate Avenue and 174th Street and Claremont Parkway um, that was the same as Orchard Street in Manhattan. Lots of little shopkeepers and you would watch them buy stuff and you'd watch how they negotiated price and so on. It's a very entrepreneurial setting. And so because you're young, you can go do that in that environment. And that was a, a, a sense of independence that you can't do today because your parents would be put in jail for child abandonment. <laughs> right. You'd be, right, exactly. It'd be child abuse, I guess you could. I don't know. I mean, I you weren't know. abused would, as a child, but people would say, oh my goodness, like, how could you do I that don't to your think, kids? I today? actually I disagree with you. It was, nobody even thought about that. Right. It was not even in the mindset. Uh, the, only the world of the last 50 years has changed that mindset, or 60, uh, 70 years. But do you think it was the environment that created your entrepreneurial spirit, or did you already have that in you? Oh, I can't answer that. I think it was the environment. 
You do. I don't think it was genetics DNA, though. My parents, having left Italy to come to the United States, that clearly they were adventuresome and they were uh, frontier seekers. But uh, I don't know the answer to that. So let's call it a blending of the both. Hmm. Did you always know that you wanted to start your own firm eventually? I've never. I, I actually started my own firm when I was five. How? Uh, at the 3rd Avenue L and 174th Street, I had a shoe sign box and I would basically put the price down of the shoe signs and go out and start. And, and try and choose. And try and choose. Make wow. 10 or 15 cents or whatever the, the going rate was. So that was your first business? <laughs> yes, it was actually. Okay. So when you left, when you left though and started Gabelli, Right, I guess it was, what was the original name of the, of the firm? Well, let's do back, okay? I went to local schools. I was, for example, the Catholic school system would, allow, would have bingo at a certain night of the week. Right. There would be a thousand people that would show up at this particular location in the Bronx. And I would go there and they didn't offer cigarettes. So I would go buy cigarettes by the carton and sell them by the pack. I would do things like become a caddy, which was entrepreneurial and where you did your own time and set your own time. I would have jobs during high school where I would take, uh, do things uh, that others wouldn't do. Then I had, during college, I would organize uh, individuals that would take students to Puerto Rico or Bermuda and I would be the chaperone, but we would uh, charge, a, we would buy and block uh, tours on a group rate and then when we were in college, we created something called JMD Enterprises, where we would run dances uh, and hire the band, the bouncers, and uh, the booze. What was it called? JMD. John, Mario, and Donald. <laughs> and John is uh, very successful today as an academic, and Donald is a very successful uh, lawyer today. And you still con are you still in contact with them? Barely, but often, in, once every 50 years on a reunion. That's interesting. So. From those, I mean, how much did you make, and what did you do with those money, with the money? Well, I bought stocks. I mean, I started investing in the stock market when I was 12 or 13 years old, and partly due to the fact that when I caddied, the other caddies would leave because they were bussed up from Yonkers into Scarsdale, and then I would stay around because I would find a way back by hitchhiking or taking a bus or somehow doing that. And wow. so the specialist would come up after the market closed, and I would be there and would either go around and play nine holes for them and listen to about what they were doing in the stock market. So I got uh, captured at around the age of 12 or 13. You see, I didn't realize that. So, you so a lot of this learning in the stock market, becoming an investor, you did all of that on the street. You did a lot of that on the street. Well, you didn't learn about how to become an investor. You learned about the stock market. You learned about the stocks. You learned how to buy and sell. And you kept close tab by reading the journal, the Business Week at the time. And you would do all of that. So I used to read Business Week every week, mm -hmm. starting a few years ago. And w the Wall Street Journal, and then in addition to that, which you wouldn't know about, you would get prices by buying a newspaper at 5.30 or 6.30 called the Journal American. It would come out after the market closed, and you would get closing prices that way. Right. And it'd be somewhere between 6.30, 7.30 at night or something like that. So Mary, tell me, because you talked about this before with me, but, but I want you to, um, Re retell the stories about how, like, the moment where it was an inflection point in your career and you said, you know what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to start my own firm. Well, that's, it was always the case of not working for someone during school, ideally. You did have a couple of jobs in the office, but I started, on, I joined Low Roads on a Monday, having graduated on a Friday. 
Steinhardt, Michael Steinhardt quit on a Friday and started a very successful hedge fund called Steinhardt Berkowitz and Fine, one of the most successful 20 years until he retired in the early 90s. So I picked up all his industries, but having known Michael and what he was doing, I understood the world of hedge funds. So it was pretty evident that at some point in time you would start your own firm. Mm -hmm. You would take the risk and do it. What happened then is that I left Lowbroads and went to William D. Witter, knowing full well that May of 75 was coming. May of 75 was the day in which commissions were changed for the first time. And the business model of firms like William D. Witter, which had pure research, but had salesmen, traders, and analysts, yeah. that model would change. So basically, William D. Witter merged into Drexel, was taken over by Drexel Burnham, and I stayed there for three months and basically started an institutional research firm on January 1st, 1977. I love how you remember the date, exactly. Well, it was pretty simple. It's, you know, we uh, went public in 1999 and uh, we split the company up finally after 19 years of being public or whatever it is and 40 years of being in a business. On this podcast, right, or on this episode, we like to talk about people's ups and downs in their career. So tell me what was a really big low in your career and how'd you learn from it? Well, you knew having been involved in a variety of businesses, for example, going down and to uh, pick up boxes, reusable boxes in the basements of supermarkets where there was a lot of interesting uh, food stored and a lot of locals like <coughs> rats walking around. You always <laughs> expected the unexpected. And so you prepared for that. And there was a lot of things you did when you were growing up in the streets of New York that prepared you for the unexpected. And as a result of that, when I started the firm, there was a telephone strike. So we couldn't get a telephone. Remember, this is a world in which no cell phones. So you had to have a payphone. There was no payphones in this building of 40 Wall. You had to go to the street. So you had to stand on the corner of Wall and William in a payphone, in the snow, because it was January that I started. And uh, one guy, Mickey Jaffe, comes walking by and says, Oh, good Billy, that's what you meant when you said you'd have an office at, at uh, the corner of Wall and William. <laughs> so the, uh, the reality is you couldn't get a typewriter. It took three weeks. Uh, you couldn't, uh, the first research report we wrote was probably had a mailing list of 200 individuals that I had called on. And I was wondering why nobody would call me. We, I, we licked the stamp on the envelopes and put them in the envelope and right. send them out. Post office calls and said, Mr. Cabelli, we've got uh, about a X number of envelopes. Uh, you didn't put stamps on. I said, oh no, I did put the stamps on. I licked them. I put that, he said, you put XYC, like 13 cents. But because it was a big envelope, you needed to put 25 cents. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, why don't you put them on and send me the bill? He says, you have to come over here and lick them on yourself. And it was snowing and it was a blizzard and you had to walk from Wall Street down to the post office, which was on the other side of Broadway. So I walk into the, where the guy told me to go. I said, I'm here, here's the money. He said, no, 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 you gotta go back up the block and buy stamps and come back down. And then you have to lick them on yourself. So there's always surprises, whatever or business you, you're in. Or you thinking to yourself, what, what if, what am I doing? Well, it's learning curve. In other words, every business so that when you are an analyst and you hear about companies that are starting facilities and you say there's a learning curve or a ramp rate or something like that, you say you, you, you fully relate to that and you understand it, whether it, that was not very technical, that issue, but it was very hands-on. And so if you want to be entrepreneurial, you've got to expect that the old garage, but this happened to be 40 wall. And so how do you feel then, Mario, about 
building a business today and how it is so much easier. You don't have to walk. No, that's not true because it's, no, it's more complicated because of the increased number of regulations versus what they were in the mid-70s. Okay, there were large barriers to entry uh, and the uh, notion of data and the, the gathering of data, which we do, while it's quicker and more instant, uh, it also creates uh, greater pressure to be more current on a, on a quicker uh, time frame. In addition to that, uh, the notion of being public was not something that we did in the mid-70s. And because of what happened with Enron and companies like that, mm -hmm. uh, WorldCom, you basically had rules like Sarbanes-Oxley that's cost us millions of dollars that have been totally unnecessary because they had to comply with some rules. So they make rules that one size fits all, doesn't make sense. It chokes off the entrepreneurial part of the American spirit. It chokes off risk taking and that is a challenge. But that's only for the, but you're only talking about one corner of this, of the entrepreneurial world, which is financial firms though that have to deal no, with this regulation. No, but, uh, but it's the same. If I was a, a, bodega, a bodega in Manhattan, the, the notion of how do I take food stamps in and what do I have to do for that and how do I do for accounting and what do I do for taxes? So everything on a relative scale, I disagree with you completely. I think regulation is a chokehold on entrepreneurialism. It is a burden that is totally unnecessary. And uh, you've got to allow the f a free market system to foster, and that is a chill factor. Notwithstanding that, going back, so what happened with us is that uh, we were in a business where you knew your expenses every day, but you didn't know your revenues. That's mm. the nature of a transaction business. So that was always a challenge. That was also a lot of pressure because I had three and a half children, they had to eat. It's, Did it you ever think you'd run out of money? That was a possibility, but uh, not one that I was concerned about. The problem is you, when making from, a, let's say, $100,000 to 5000 in a year, you have to worry about what happens in your second year. I always knew I can get employed somewhere else because you know, I had the confidence from being able to pick stocks for an extended period of time. I had a very good Rolodex of people that bought my research over the preceding 10 years and knew that we could make money for them. The world of 1977, the death of equities, nobody wanted to buy stocks. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's why we had to come up with this idea of what was a business worth and who would buy it, called, and we call it the private market value of a business. And uh, so that was a marketing pitch to get people to think about even owning stocks. And that was only 30 odd years ago. Right. 360 months ago. I love how you, I mean, you calculate things, you're so data-driven. Well, that's I can also tell you how much it costs to buy a bottle of beer then and now and today. But so that's how much? Today you can cut away. No, how cut. much then? Uh, probably 25 cents. Wow. <laughs> that's amazing to think about that. That was only 30-something years ago. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think you could do it at Yankee Stadium, though, but that's a different <laughs> One of the things I've always loved about you, Mario, is that you... You were just talking about data. Like I see you walk around sometimes and you have your briefcase full of papers and there's no company that you talk about that you haven't read their annual reports, other research reports perhaps, or you haven't talked to their C I mean, you've talked to their CEOs. You do a it lot of a, research. Well, yeah, but that's our job. In other words, when I went to graduate school, okay, I knew that I wanted to be in the investment business. I took a course with Roger Murray, Security Analysis, and that was what said, this is what you want to do. So that was fundamental analysis in the Graham Dodd tradition of Columbia Business School. Roger Murray was the mm -hmm. professor at the time, and Bruce Greenwald is now there for 20 years, and he's the current professor of a methodology of doing fundamental bottoms-up research. The uh, legal industry does not understand that. 
they think all you're doing is calling companies and trying to get inside information. We're trying to get insights and collect and connect the dots. So when I read and I follow the movie industry, you read Variety, it comes out every week. You read the trades. You uh, obviously call all the companies, but you also read all the annual reports. So when you ask me what's going on in the world today, today, Betty, you have the following. You have the first quarter earnings out of your way. Annual reports start coming out middle of February through the middle of uh, June and you have the second quarter earnings. So right now it is the crunch time in the world in which we're investing on top of all the meetings that we go around to the world and try to see as many companies. The second part that's changed is uh, Tiananmen Square in June of 1989 and Berlin Wall in November of 1989. We were always following companies. For example, my first visit to China was in 1981. Uh, we went with Walter Kissinger, Henry's brother, to a plant mm -hmm. with the auto analyst of New York. We went to Tokyo, and I would go to Europe prior to that to see companies in the automotive industry, as an example, which is an area in which we had core and competency with compounded knowledge. But we didn't invest. After Berlin Wall came down, we said we're going to have to invest globally. So now the next part was traveling around the world. To right, see there's a whole companies. new world that opened up. Well, it wasn't a world that opened up, but given a bottoms up, hands on, bottom of, you know, touching and feeling what we deal with, uh, we basically had to go visit these companies. And so if there's a meeting for Pernod in Paris and there's a meeting for uh, Suntory in Shanghai, uh, in Tokyo, you can't do You're it. there. No, we can't do it. You just can't do it. So you have a team that has been trained like we have an ABK, an American-born Korean, working for us in Shanghai for the last 10 years, and he covered the beverage industry. We have a guy in Hunk, in um, London, so if there's a meeting, he would go to it. So we had three or four analysts in various parts of the world. We opened right. it, and that's what we do, and that's how you leverage that up. You can't get on planes and do that. But how did, okay, but, but, but I want to get back to you, though. Okay, so, yeah, so I, I take it for a given you've got a great team around you who are doing lots of research as well and, and gathering information. But what about you? Like, how did you learn? Like, how did you learn to coalesce and condense that information so well to allow you to invest in companies and make a lot of money? Well, you became an industry specialist. So when I started my career, I was assigned Michael Steinhardt's industries. The cell side institutional research had verticals. So you would be assigned the automotive industry. So you covered General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, whatever was public American Motors at that time. You'd cover all the truck companies, you'd cover all the original equipment parts companies, all the distributors. So I looked at this mosaic of companies and I would go visit companies in Detroit, Cleveland, uh, Toledo, uh, uh, Flint, Michigan, and so on, and then I'd go to Atlanta, Georgia to visit companies. I'd go to Houston, Texas. I'd go to California. So you'd visit all companies that were public in the United States, as well as private companies. You'd read all the trades and magazines, and you would basically do spreadsheets. Those spreadsheets were done manually. So doing that, doing that, Betty, for 40 years, you have an accumulated and compounded knowledge <laughs> of certain industries. And then you morph from that. For example, O'Reilly's Advanced Auto uh, were not public companies then. Pep Boys might have been. Right. Okay, and some of them like Genuine Parts, which is the NAP Napa stores were, were public. And so you're following the same companies and they go through cycles and they go through business dynamics and you learn how CEOs of these companies can handle new challenges and how they allocate capital. So we then picked up industries that were producer durables, like John Deere Farm Equipment. We picked up companies that were in the broadcasting industry, therefore they followed cable, they mm -hmm. then followed uh, uh, that most of them got into the wireless business, so that got us into that part of the world. And you followed companies that were growth, you followed companies that were cyclical, you followed companies that were commodity-driven. So 
you accumulate that knowledge. It's institutional knowledge. Yeah, yeah, you do. And what then happens is that you can read a, an annual report and cherry pick what you're looking for. So if I picked up an industry, if I wanted to follow something as exotic, exotic, I said, as radiators <laughs> for cars, I would read a year's supply of monthly or weekly trade magazines. On radiators. I, on radiators. I would Are get, you serious? Yes. I would get everything involved in radiators. So today, if you're a rookie analyst coming to me and saying, I want to learn about XYZ industry. Okay, let's say I want to learn about what Tesla's doing with lithium batteries and electronic ve electric vehicles. You would get him to learn everything about the power engines and the powertrains and the assemblies and, and, and do that and how many man hours of labor are associated and so on. And that's not complicated. You just got to work at it. Do you need to meet the CEO before you invest in him or her? Again, when we follow an industry, we follow verticals. If you're dealing with a small company, we prefer doing that. A small company defined as market capitalizations of under a billion dollars. If you're meeting with a company with a hundred billion dollar market cap, mm, it, it, there's not much value added you can do. Okay. okay, so to the degree that I followed the entertainment business and to the degree that I've been doing it for a long period of time, obviously I've met the Igers of the world that are at Disney long time ago. And Brian Roberts, I knew his father and Steve Burke and Jeff Katzenberg at DreamWorks, and Sumner Redstone, and Philippe Doman, and Les, you know, at CBS, and so on. So you, you, you know the individuals, and then you try to stay current with them. What do you look for in a good manager? Uh, it's an interesting question. I look for a good business that will do well in inflation, deflation, and through stressful periods that are cash generators. Uh, which means that if I have to, I still, if I'm doing a billion dollars of EBITDA earnings before interest tax, depreciation, amortization, I got to put a billion dollars in back to CapEx just to maintain a billion dollars. You have to question whether that's a good business. Uh, we had a company today called Energize and they make a battery. They do 300 million of EBITDA and they have CapEx of $30 million. That is a very good business. The question is why? So you look at business first. Yeah, but you also look at the CEO. How is he allocating capital? Like Warren Buffett has a railroad business. Uh, he makes boots. <laughs> he sells Dairy Queen, and I have to go out and have a the Blizzard ice cream just to see what it's like. And so, is he a, you know, are these good businesses? And which ones are good? Okay, they just bought a company called Precision Cast Parts. They paid thirty-four billion dollars for it. We are honoring the CEO of that company, Mark Dunnigan, at our annual meeting. We honor four CEOs a year. Okay. And uh, he's coming in because he's allocated capital well. Is Warren Buffett, how's he going to do that with this conglomerate in the financial services? Because he's very good at allocating capital. So I, don't, I make the distinction between a good business, which is important, where there's a moat around it, or an individual that knows how to allocate capital like Warren Buffett. And he's done a very good job at that. And he's done extremely well. And we started our first mutual fund, Gabelli Equity Trust and Asset Fund, both of which are 30 years old. Uh, more or less. Um, we bought Berkshire at 3000 mm -hmm. Today it's 220000 It's amazing. Well, it's 70 times your money, but it's also big dollars. You could have made the same thing, however, by uh, buying Netflix at a certain time or Apple. and. Or what about an Uber? Well, it's private. We don't do private companies. We only buy right. public market stocks. How would you describe yourself as a manager? Terrible. Why? Because I expect individuals that we hire to be PhDs. Okay, privileged, no, poor, hungry, and driven. And so, you know, some of them will come to us and, you know, they're privileged, hungry, and driven, or will work hard, and some will come with us because pop has dough, and, but 
Who do you prefer? Which do you prefer? Well, it's hard to say. All of them will work. Some of them will not. It depends. I mean, we've hired people from southern states that have never been through snowstorms in New York, and we didn't think about that initially. (laughs) And why do we need this for? (laughs) Give me L.A., you know. And uh, um, so the challenges of hiring, and then you want somebody that has a passion for stocks and not necessarily just a job, okay? So that's the challenge. About, let's call it 15 years ago, I got a call from Rick Pitino. He's coaching University of Kentucky. He says, Mary, I want to stop by your office. I got to figure out how he knew me. He stops by the office two months later, and he says, how do you hire these people? So I pointed out the analysts have that poor, hungry, and driven. That is, we go into business schools. We find the ones that have a passion for the market. So he wrote a book, a chapter in his book when he was trying to find a money manager for Jamal Mashburn called The PhD Attitude. And so... Uh, that's the uh, that's why I, I would like to have individuals that are motivated rather than me motivating them. I'd like to, we have a simple culture: make money for the client, make money for the client, and then make money for the teammates, and then make money for the shareholders. And that's the culture. And sometimes people lose sight of that, and that's a challenge. We don't like to motivate people; we like them self-motivated because that's the nature of the business. And we like them to understand the Goldman Sachs approach. To, uh, and Wall Street's approach back in the 60s, 70s uh, of the ethics of Wall Street. Which was what, exactly? Was, most of these firms were partnerships. Okay. So you knew what everybody was doing. And you watched everything because one partner making a mistake can impact the entire organization. The weakest link in a chain, a chain that's weakest link can destroy the chain. And so they learned that when they went public, things started changing at the margin. Do you like PhDs, poor, hungry, and driven because you yourself have that in and there's no question there's I learned to do research when you're doing research it's a you know you have a team of two you and someone else at most so you have to know everything about a company and everything about an industry not only that you have to know how the stocks react so it's not only gathering the data rain the data projecting interpreting but also communicating it but in addition to that Betty you have to understand how the stocks have discounted or anticipate what you're going to think about so each one has different skill sets so Mario how do you fire someone it's an extraordinarily difficult thing when someone um, doesn't come to work and we hired that individual, we try to figure out how we can improve that individual. And there are times, uh, as occurred in the cyclical nature of our business, where we have to re-examine how we uh, staff up and how we move people around to different departments. So it is, a, it is one of our biggest challenges here. We have an HR team um, and so on. How do you, you're in so many meetings all the time, so how do you make meetings go faster? Well, when we have internal meetings as opposed to external meetings, we like to think in paragraphs before we come to the meeting and then deliver the sound bites so that the decisions are laid out in a very organized way and then there's allow individuals to collaborate and think about their positions beforehand. So if you're an analyst and you come to a meeting and you're gonna comment on the company's current quarterly earnings, you probably should have read everything and understand the questions that people would ask you just the way you would want to manage a client's money. It's just like if you were a doctor going in to operate on someone's heart or a, a person that was setting up a satellite and you had to know everything about it, particularly when somebody, or a, a spaceship where somebody was on it. I like that though. I like how you say you have to think of paragraphs and go in there and deliver and deliver them. What's a wise way to invest your money? Well, we'd like to tell an individual who's 22 years old the following have one less 
Starbucks Americano a day, put that $5 you save into an account by tapping it in on your iPad into a, a pay system, and even if it's robotic investing, have one less bear a week. And we're told that if you can compound at 6, 8, or 10%, just lay out the matrix for the next 40 years and how much money you'll have. You'll never miss the beer, you'll never miss the Starbucks, but boy, at the end of 40 years, you're gonna have a lot of money. So it's really just the notion of understanding the compounded rate of return on small sums of money accumulating over an extended period of time and how that gives you economic flexibility. It's just a wonderful dynamic. The seventh wonder of the world. What book changed your life? I don't read a lot. I read a lot of annual reports. I read a lot of trade magazines. I read, you know, there's two or three that deal with the auto industry, three or four that deals with the music and entertainment business. There's two or three that deal with uh, some other industries, including those in the investment business. I actually read some strange things like the uh, World uh, Economic Journal's uh, Asian uh, uh, report that uh, goes back to when I went to Japan about 40 years ago, and uh, 30 years ago, and started reading that. So I, you kind of, but religiously read the journal and the business section of the Times so that I understand how the world thinks about what I'm thinking about and so that I don't miss anything from a different perspective. But even Ad Age, I've been reading Ad Age now for 50 years. Mm. And that's just a great insight in marketing trends and how consumers' behavior is going on and understanding what I call the next generation, not the millennials, but the ones after that, which I call the digital world, the digital generation. When is it okay to yell at someone, Mario? All the time. As long as they know it's not at them. It's not an argument at honeymoon, but it's an argument sui generis. And that is, it is a basically coming out of a trading room culture. And if they don't understand that, then they really should not be in the investment business to understand that there's a great deal of intensity, a great deal of pressure. It's, that's what makes it the business that we're part of. You have to understand if tomorrow, if tomorrow North Korea launches a missile against China, as opposed to Japan or the United States, what the reaction would be and how stocks would react. No different than the day after the day of 9-11 when I was in Nashville, how the markets would react. You have to be prepared for that. And that's, uh, it requires a certain intensity and to the degree that someone doesn't understand that, you should let them know. What is your go-to interview question? I'd like to ask them what they did in school. I need to know whether they were working during holidays. I'd like to know whether they just took trips. I'd like to know whether they just uh, didn't do anything. And then in addition to that, how do they pay for their education? And then in addition to that, what's important to them? And obviously, I'd like to see how much research they did. If they just showed up because they were checking a box, we could figure that out very quickly. And you have a profile of individual. I can tell you what somebody from Vanderbilt or someone from SMU or someone from the University of Utah would be like. And we had one individual one time, it was from Merrill Lynch. They hired him and he said he went to uh, Yale undergrad and Yale business school and I said, there's no way that guy went there and he didn't go to either one. So you know, you, you kind of get a sense of that. And uh, you like individuals that want to come to work. Well, you and you actually are, are go going into my- But our business is different, okay? You really want someone that has a passion for the markets. Right. Well, that, that goes to my other question because you've, you've interviewed and you've talked to so many people in your career. Like how do you spot a liar? Oh, you can't. You just get a gut feel for it. You know, you, uh, it's just, and even then, it's a difficult thing. I, I'm not very good at that. How do you motivate someone who has become lazy or has decided to not work as hard as before? 
Well, that's a question mark, and we, I, I actually, particularly if I helped recruit that individual, um, what mistake did I make? So I'll go back to the individual and we'll decide to say to that individual, hey, what's changing your life? What's really bugging you? And to the degree I don't get a good answer, that's not good. To the degree I get a good answer, then we try to figure out how to improve that, uh, how to help that individual. Mario, you're on the road all the time. How do you stay sane on the road? You don't. You become the midnight prowler. I mean, how do you stay sane? <laughs> you know, um, you have the, there's a difference today. It's an interesting world we live in. And that is you can have de devices like an iPad that keep me into the market. I get up at four in the morning or if, you know, if you go to LA, four in the morning is, is easy because you're up at four in the, in the morning in New York. It's, uh, and so you just stay in touch with the world and uh, uh, you ignore a lot of other things. The problem is you eat too much, <laughs> too often. You can have five different meals going out to LA in one day. <laughs> Well, that's actually the other question is, how do you stay healthy? I mean, uh, you've been in this business for so long. I have no idea. Drinking uh, three glasses of wine, a uh, uh, Barolo uh, per day, or uh, a Pugliac. Is it your Italian heritage? I doubt it. <laughs> I just think it's uh, pure luck. If you weren't doing this, Mario, what would you want to be doing? I really am not working. And I haven't worked since I started. I actually have a passion for the markets and it is basically me against the world which is a very interesting competitive dynamic so I need to figure out how to gather information, array it, project it, interpret it and try to be right more than I'm wrong. And my analogy is Ted Williams who, you know, bat 400, he was the best hitter in time but he made out three out of five times so we know we're going to make mistakes so you have to be practical about life. Okay. And so, uh, from that point of view, uh, that's all we do. It's so not you can't see yourself. Like you've never been like, oh my goodness, if I could redo this again, I'd want to be like a baseball player, or I'd want to be, you know, you don't have any like you don't have a you don't have a. I I I'm basically very practical. I played stickball. I was very good at stickball in the Bronx. You don't know what that is. And, uh, <laughs> basically, I do. I, okay, I played basketball, but white guys can't jump. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to be an all-star basketball player. I'll play. I still play basketball sometimes. And I, uh, the practical reality is that I like the capital markets. I like competition. I like pressure. And I like intensity. And I, I would pay to work for someone if I could do all of those things on a global basis. So that's the beauty of what I do and what I've been doing and what I continue to do. And I do it because I have a moral and obligation to do my best and our team's best for the clients that entrust their money to us. And that's what we're going to continue to do for a long period of time. Next week on Radiate, it's near summer. I'm so excited, which means people are out teeing it up on the golf course. But not me, because I can't golf. But instead, we have golfing great Greg Norman in the studio. He's going to tell us how he went from star golfer to one of the richest retired athletes in the world. What did he do right? And... Yes, we discussed the moment that nobody will let him forget, that huge loss at the Masters that people still talk about to this day. How did it define his career? Well, thanks for joining us. I'm Betty Lou. If you liked what you heard, please review us on iTunes. Give us five stars, please. And if you'd like to subscribe to my newsletter, go to RadiateInc.com. And as always, find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. See you next week on Radiate.